All right. Welcome to the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. Tonight is July 18th, 2023, and I want to thank you all, comrades, for being here. Our class tonight is going to be on the history of U.S. imperialism, World War II. Uh, this is the third part of a series on the history of U.S. imperialism, which we are doing because it is very necessary for American communists, American anti-imperialists to understand the history of our country's imperialism. As it stands right now, is the greatest threat to life on earth, and it's our primary task to fight it. So we've had two classes before this, uh, which we will uh, recap on in the presentation. And then, uh, Comrade, is there anything that you want to say on this class before we get started? Yeah, I, I guess um, we will be talking about it in the class, but um, just so everyone is aware, you know, there's uh, multiple sides in uh, any conflict. Uh, we have to look at it dialectically, as we always say. You know, for the beginning part of the of the war, the the Popular Front was in charge of running the war. But towards the end, the monopoly capitalists started showing their power again. So, just to be clear, that it's you know there's uh, dialectics that needs to be taken into account. All right, thank you, comrade. Uh, so as I said, our class tonight is the history of U.S. imperialism, World War II. What we're going to be learning today is a little bit about the collaboration between American capitalists and Nazi Germany before and during the war. American imperialism during World War II and the progressiveness of the American intervention in World War II despite it. So a bit of a dialectical analysis of World War II where, yes, America is an imperialist country but it was also a justified intervention in the war against fascism. And we'll also be learning about American imperialism immediately following World War II in the post-war period, including with the creation of NATO and the CIA, uh, the Marshall Plan, Bretton Woods, Stay Behind Ops, and more. And just briefly, I'll go ahead and give our series recap. So, so far, uh, we've had a class on the history of U.S. imperialism, its origins, in May, we covered the origins of American imperialism, starting with the development of American capitalism into imperialism by the end of the 19th century, and covering the massive launch of American imperialism, with the annexations of Hawaii and Samoa, the Spanish-American War of 1898, the U.S. intervention in the Chinese Boxer Rebellion, the Philippine-American War, and the Banana Wars. And then in June, we covered the role of American imperialism in the great inter-imperialist war of World War I and how the United States became a massive power in the world with the war and built institutions after the war which served to benefit the United States at the expense of the European working class and ended up resulting in the rise of Nazism. It also explored the interwar period and the U.S. interventions in the Russian Civil War and the ongoing occupation of Nicaragua that contrasted with the neglect towards the Spanish Civil War and other pre-World War II fascist conflicts, such as Italy's invasion of Ethiopia and Japan's invasion of Manchuria. And so we'll go ahead and start with the American collaboration with Nazi Germany. German reparations fuel Nazism. Following the First World War, American imperialists set up many policies and institutions internationally. Besides the League of Nations, 
which the United States never entered, the plan for war reparations from Germany to the British and French were established, as well as the Bank of International Settlements. Britain and France had to pay their debts to the United States for United States aid and intervention in the First World War. When Germany was unable to pay its debts, it relied on the United States loans to do so, which worked to some extent from the implementation of the Dawes Plan in 1924 until the Wall Street crash of 1929. The Great Depression had international effect. While German industry began to prosper again, the German people were left with a severe economic crisis in the 1930s, which could have easily gave way to a socialist revolution, but instead gave way to Nazism as Adolf Hitler takes power in 1933. Isolationism, America first, and Nazi inspiration. Adolf Hitler's idea of Lebensraum or Lebensraum was partially inspired by American Manifest Destiny, and his treatment of the non-Aryans was inspired by American treatment of African Americans and Indigenous Americans, as well as United States immigration policy. Many Americans found themselves in support of Nazi Germany from the start and organized an organization called the America First Committee. It preached isolationism and non-interventionism in the Second World War against the Axis powers and was dissolved four days after Pearl Harbor. Notable members of the AFC include Henry Ford, Charles Lindbergh, Robert E. Wood, retired U.S. general and head of Sears at the time, and more, another one, Hearst, uh, who was not a member, I guess, but uh, communists were involved, but left and denounced the organization as a Nazi front following Operation Barbarossa in June 1941. American business dealings with Nazis. Many American companies collaborated with Nazi Germany before the Second World War, including Ford, the Associated Press, Coca-Cola, Gillette, Kraft, J.P. Morgan, Chase Bank, Union Banking Corporation, International Business Machines, IBM, International Telegraph and Telegraph Corporation, Telephone and Telegraph, ITT, General Motors, General Electric, Alcoa, Standard Oil, DuPont, Eastman Kodak, Westinghouse, Pratt & Whitney, Douglas Aircraft, United Fruit, Singer, International Harvester, and a number of Hollywood film studios, all only those that we know of. Fritz Thyssen, or Thyssen, a Nazi coal and steel magnate, had his wealth protected by Brown Brothers Harriman investment firm through the holding company Union Banking Corporation in an account managed by Prescott Bush, who's the father of George Herbert Walker Bush and the grandfather of George W. Bush. In 1941, Union Banking Corp was seized under the Trading with the Enemy Act, but the shares were returned after the war to Bush and other American shareholders. American imperialism and Nazi Germany. The law firm Sullivan and Cromwell LLP, whose managing director and who would later become Secretary of State John Foster Dules or Dulles, and as a partner Alan Dules, had served 
many clients of these corporations and institutions, one of which was the Bank for International Settlements in Switzerland, which continued to deal with Germany after the start of the war and received most of the gold stolen by the Nazis during this period. American Thomas McKittrick, head of the institution, managed this. American monopoly capitalists were supporting Nazism. For the U.S. imperialists, war was a great business, and they played both sides of the war, aiding the Allies and the Axis powers. This does not mean the role the United States then played in aiding the defeat of Nazi Germany, fascist Italy, and imperial Japan was not progressive or justified. The United States was, as it still is, a bourgeois democracy and an imperialist country that stood up and did the right thing militarily in the Second World War. And there was an attempt at fascism in America. The fascism that the business interests of America were interested in were no longer limited to foreign nations. The possibility of a fascist coup against Franklin Delano Roosevelt was considered and somewhat planned. The business plot of 1933 or the Wall Street push, as it was called, was a plan to overthrow FDR and install Smedley Butler, who became an anti-imperialist retired general as its leader. When Butler was approached about it, he and others testified to the McCormick-Dickstein Committee and foiled the plot. The unredacted version was actually revealed in a 1935 New Masses magazine article by John L. Spivak. Okay. So now we have actually from Traders in American History, Lessons from the Moscow Trials by Earl Browder, nonetheless. And he wrote the following. If there are Americans still sufficiently naive to think that the days of treason ended with the Civil War, let them ponder the recent words of William E. Dodd, lately resigned as ambassador to Berlin, who publicly declared, there is no doubt that the Nazi government has paid spies in America and that many of these are ranking American officials. It is clear that the arrests of a few lower class Nazi spies during the past few weeks is still far away from the centers of fascist espionage and treason that infest the upper circles of American society. The open incitations are to the assassination of President Roosevelt that have been published in the New York Herald Tribune, the New York Sun, and the McClure Syndicate Confidential Dispatches are only a little whiff of the devil's brew of treason that boils in Wall Street circles. The recent column of the well-known Republican commentator, Mark Sullivan, in which he compares President Roosevelt with a skunk and proposes to remove a skunk from the national premises by writing polite letters to him was but a cowardly echo of this assassination propaganda in high places. Treason is afoot in America today. Let the Moscow trials arouse the American people to more alertness towards it. All right, we'll go ahead and stop for our first round of questions and comments. And we'll go ahead and take the hands we have up. Yeah, could somebody, at least for America and America at the time, explain when to them Nazism is okay and then when they had to fight it? What I guess is it when um, Nazi Germany stepped on the toes of U.S. interests? Is that as simple as that? That's for anybody. Thank you. Yeah, I can go ahead and give an answer to that. And then if somebody else wants to, they can raise their hand. 
um, American business interests, as we just saw there, were mostly, well, at least partially supportive of Nazism before the Second World War. And they saw it as, you know, an affront to the Soviet Union, something that they could use to destroy uh, the communists in the world. But they also saw it as a friendly, you know, ally to their imperial interests. But then 1941 comes along, the attack at Pearl Harbor happens, and of course we declare war on Japan. And at that point in time, we weren't going to intervene in the war in Europe, but then there's an event that happens that actually drags us in, which is Germany declares war on the United States first. Then the United States went ahead and declared war on Germany, and the Americans were not supportive of Nazism. It's also important to understand that Roosevelt, from the start, was opposed to Nazism and even said that people like Charles Lindbergh, who was a very famous aviationist, I don't know what you'd want to call that, um, in the 1920s, Roosevelt said that he was certain that Charles Lindbergh was a Nazi. And yeah, so FDR was opposed to Nazism and the German declaration of war on the United States Gave us right. the perfect thing to invade late in the war, 1944, but still invade to fight the Nazis. So I hope that answered your question. Yeah, um, for everyone's interest, remember that American corporations, their first loyalty is not to the United States. German corporations, their first loyalty is not to Germany. Their first loyalty is to the color green, money. They'll sell their mother down the river in order to make a profit. That's the nature of the capitalist system. So remember, sometimes it's to our advantage. Arm and Hammer, you heard of them. They were very big in trading with the young Soviet Republic. And Lenin was favorable to them because they helped the Soviet Union. So that us, some other corporations. So it's not that they're pro-left or pro-communist, but they're pro-money. They saw they can make money with the Soviet government, the young, and they traded. It's that simple. Thank you. Thank you, comrade. Yeah, I just wanted to bring up something that was kind of relevant to this. Um, you know, the Germans, they also took a lot of inspiration from the Ottoman genocide of the Armenians, as well as Greek Christians and a lot of other groups. Another thing to note is that um, we have Nazi Germany to thank for Fanta. Because when the war started, Coca-Cola lost all of their contracts and the ability to sell their products in Germany, which means they couldn't sell Coke syrup. So they created their own drink, which was called Fanta, you know, Fanta, whatever. But, you know, this is a very interesting class. And it's, it's great that we're touching on this because there was an American Nazi party in the United States, which was forcibly shut down. Thank you, comrade. And I wanted to say as well, I thought that I had included this in the first section of this presentation, but I guess I didn't. There was even more uh, disgusting American collaboration with Nazi Germany during the war. So General Motors and Ford both made military weaponry for Nazi Germany. Cars, trucks, tanks, planes, even the turbines for their V2 rocketry, which is what they stopped their nuclear uh, development to work on, was the bombs that would go ahead and they'd, they'd basically hum until they stopped and then they'd drop on a town like in London and would cause massive damage. But most of their holdings were basically seized with the Trading with the Enemies Act 
but their subsidiaries continued to work in Germany. And when Allied bombing raids started in Germany that destroyed a lot of these factories, they actually sued and won reparations from the Allied governments to pay for their factories that were destroyed in Germany by Allied bombing raids. So it just goes to show the disgusting nature of the American imperialists during World War II, that they helped to aid the Nazis. And then after the war, when the Nazis were defeated, sued for damages. So I wanted to add that in there. Thank you, comrades. So just a question, actually. Well, it's just more of a question, actually, to a broad opinion of anyone here. Supposedly, the Nazi parties here, um, everybody says, were shut down. And yet, throughout Trump's presidency, for example, and even now, they're just like, it seems like they've just made a comeback, like completely on a larger scale. I'm curious as to how we can just say that they're shut down complete they were shut down completely but yet where it's like when one says it it's like to imply that they're non-existent i just want to have some clarification there yeah i can go ahead and answer that the nazi party and the america first committee were shut down the actual organizations themselves were disbanded but that doesn't mean that the members themselves and that that ideology doesn't still stick in the you know dark recesses of american society these things are people in these uh, sentiments still fester. You know, there, there have still been neo-Nazi groups that formed after World War II. And there are still a lot of American Nazis today. Um, one of the big things is America first is still a slogan that gets used, like you said, um, for example, by Trump, but not just limited to that. And it is a dog whistle. It is a dog whistle back to that time when they said America first and they were preaching isolationism, non-interventionism against the fascist uh, powers. So yeah, you can have an organization of Nazis be disbanded and the Nazis still go and either make up other organizations or operate covertly um, in American society. So I hope that answers your question. Uh, yes, I was gonna mention, I was gonna bring up what you just uh, uh, very nicely brought up, but I wanna take it one, one step further about the companies that uh, General Motors that sued a little postscript, they were paid. They didn't just sue, but they actually, the government did actually give them reparations for having their factories bombed during World War II. Thank you, comrade. And, and it's interesting too, with Henry Ford specifically, uh, Henry Ford wrote a lot of articles for the Dearborn Independent, which is where his main factories were in Michigan. And then later, a book that was entitled The International Jew, The World's Foremost Problem. So he was one of the most rabid anti-Semites before the war and was very inspirational to the Nazis, so much so that Adolf Hitler actually hung a portrait of Henry Ford in his Munich office and said once, I regard Heinrich Ford as my inspiration. So Henry Ford um, basically was one of the fa fascist American business interests at that time. And it's no surprise that when he sued for reparations for damages to his factories during World War II, he got that money. And my understanding is Henry Ford had Mein Kampf in the factories uh, of Ford for the, um, I guess, for the employees to just read just on their free time. Mein Kampf, the book that uh, Adolf Hitler wrote. So there's that kind of mutual um, I guess, solidarity. And that's all. Thank you, comrade. Yeah. So <clears throat> um, 
in school, they teach us about the 1936 Molotov-Ribbentrop Pacts that the Soviet Union signs with Nazi Germany. Whereas that's what's taught to us as uh, people try to make it seem like it's an alliance when it was, wasn't an alliance compared to like how all of Europe and America at the time. But I guess my question is, is that um, why do we hyper-focus on the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, but yet don't talk about any of this stuff that was going on? Yeah, I can answer that. I think the answer to that is to create this anti-communist narrative of totalitarianism and make an equivalence between fascism, uh, Nazism, and leave out any historical context about how Western imperialists um, allied with and did treaties with the Nazis before uh, the start of the war. So they'll go ahead and play up the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact and lie about it, um, but they won't bring up the pacts that happened. I believe there was the Munich Agreement and a couple of other ones um that were done with western powers um that they're just going to leave out because that's a, the whole world war ii history is a period of, of intense historical revisionism um a lot of it aimed against the soviet union um, but i saw a couple of hands go up in response to that Comrade, you have the floor i'm a history teacher so i teach this every year now i'll tell you the exact reason why we skip over it and we don't talk about this push it's because in our state standards of education, uh, in the standards of education, which is passed down from the federal level as well with with the uh, with federal recommendations, specifically states highlight United States as a force for democracy and freedom within the world political elements. That is specific requirement to the point where during one class that I taught. I and I was observed in, I was I received negative points and was dinged for saying that the Cold War was a battle between capitalism and communism. And my observer pulled me aside afterwards and said, no, 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 you can't say that. It's supposed to be democracy versus communism. So straight up just mask off moment, right? So it it's not a big secret. We don't talk about because it makes America look bad, and our state standards say don't make America look bad, except for stuff that happened 200 years ago. Then you can go ham on it. Then it's a perfectly okay. Basically, once everyone's dead, then it's perfectly fine to, to talk about and feel bad about. Thank you. Thank you for that, comrade. All right. Yeah, so I just wanted to say, yeah, so as you can see, um, you know, there's a divide in America between the monopoly capitalists and the, you know, and the others, you know, which includes the proletariat, the um, and then petty bourgeoisie, even some of the other smaller um, capitalists that aren't quite petty bourgeois, but aren't quite uh, monopoly capitalists either. Um, this, this is important because uh, uh, for this reason, there were pushes um, from the um, the common turn, the Communist International, the Third International, to form a popular front in every country, a patriotic force to uh, fight uh, fascism. Um, but then you had uh, Trotskyite groups, uh, namely the Socialist Workers Party, that actively worked to dismantle the popular front. 
saying that it was a, an instance of class collaborationism. So you could see right here, you know, the Trotskyites are working with fascism by trying to disunite all the forces that are against fascism. What that would have led to is a domination by monopoly capital to go on and support fascism. That's all. Thank you so much for that, comrade. And that is really relevant today as we look at the ultra leftist poll in the current world uh, communist movement that is taking uh, the exact wrong stance and the State Department stance on the current conflicts going on. Um, yeah, there is an excellent documentary that's a class analysis of the rise of fascism in Germany called Prolocult, spelt with a K. Um, it's free on YouTube. There's dialectics to it. I don't think I agree with everything it says, but it's definitely something I recommend. All right. Thank you, comrade. And if possible, you could probably put that in the chat so that some of us can look that up. Uh, so we'll go ahead and go to the uh, next section now, uh, which is going to be the United States in World War II. The United Front Policy During World War II. Dimitrov's United Front leads to Allied victory. In 1935, Georgi Dimitrov, the then General Secretary of the Executive Committee of the Communist International, brought the communist movement the anti-fascist United Front Policy. This called for communists of the world to make anti-fascists their primary task, unite with communists and non-communists in the struggle against fascism and defend bourgeois democracy against fascism. He said, there is no more imperative duty than that of influencing public opinion and governments with the aim of ending the ostrich-like policy of hiding the head in the sand when confronted with unbridled fascist intervention. There is no more vital task than that of supporting by deeds the peace policy of Soviet democracy, which aims at stopping fascist intervention, curbing the aggressors, and defending the independence of the democratic rights and liberties of the people. This policy continued and intensified into World War II. The United States recognized the Soviet Union under Roosevelt, and after Operation Barbarossa, signed a mutual assistance treaty with the Soviet Union, and began shipping 11 billion in munitions and aid to the USSR under the Lend-Lease program. Once the United States entered the war following the attack at Pearl Harbor, the United States definitively became allied with the Soviet Union in the war against fascism. Roosevelt and Stalin met many times and agreed on peaceful coexistence in victory. The Western Front, opened initially by Africa and then in France, was crucial in aiding the defeat of Nazism. Imperialists like Truman had other ideas for a post-war war world. Office of Strategic Services, OSS, the ironic predecessor to the CIA. The OSS was the intelligence agency of the United States during World War II. It was a first attempt at centralizing any military intelligence gathering. It lasted from 1942 to 1945, dissolving shortly after the end of the war. However, much of its functions were taken over by the CIA and INR. Functions of the OSS included spying to collect intelligence, organizing anti-Nazi resistance troops, resistance groups in Europe 
in providing training to anti-Japanese guerrilla troops in Asia. The OSS played a role in training KMT forces in China, guiding allied forces in Burma against the Japanese army, and training, arming, and supplying the Viet Minh and French Indochina, present-day Vietnam. OSS operatives managed to penetrate Nazi Germany by training German and Austrian individuals for missions inside Germany. Some of these agents include exiled communists and socialist party members, labor activists, anti-Nazi POWs, and German and Jewish refugees. Operations in Switzerland provided extensive information on German air defenses, submarine production, and weapons, including secret efforts in chemical and biological warfare. Switzerland's station also supported resistance fighters in France, Austria, and Italy, and helped with the surrender of German forces in Italy in 1945. U.S. imperialism during World War II. Imperialists still gained from war. Despite the United States allying with the Soviet Union and working in a united front against the Axis powers, the imperialists still gained from the war and would ultimately determine post-war policy, not Roosevelt or the Soviets. The United States received 7.8 billion from Lend-Lease, American industry boomed, several businesses profited from both sides of the war. The military occupations in Europe and the Pacific allowed for further occupation and the setting up of U.S. military bases and economic satellites, including the former Axis powers, and not a single factory was destroyed in the U.S. Harry Truman, who would shortly later so launch the Cold War, said, if we see that Germany is winning, we ought to help Russia, and if Russia is winning, we ought to help Germany. And that way, let them kill as many as possible, although I don't want to see Hitler victorious under any circumstances. After the 1944 vice presidential election shafted Henry Wallace for Truman's last second, Truman took over in FDR's death and changed the end of the war by using atomic monopoly against the Soviets. History of the CPUSA by William Z. Foster. Chapter 28, World War II, The People's Anti-Fascist War, from 1941 to 1945. The capitalist governments of the United States and Great Britain, controlled by reactionary ruling classes, tainted heavily with fascism and having in mind only one objective, the making of billions for themselves, could not possibly rise above the sordid level of their own imperialist interests during the war. They could not represent the anti-fascist spirit of the American British and world masses, nor could they have led a people's democratic anti-fascist war. Their imperialist interests in pulling such territorial and other conquests as they could out of the war had nothing in common with the aims of the peoples who were fighting desperately for their freedom and their very lives. The imperialists constantly betrayed the democratic war aims of the allied coalition the only consistently anti-imperialist and anti-fascist force among the big powers in the war alliance was the USSR. The imperialists of the United States and Great Britain showed their unwillingness and inability to fight fascism by their active support of Hitler before the war and by their constant pressure for a negotiated peace during the war. Without the anti-fascist influence of the Soviet Union, they would have arrived at a settlement with Hitler far more definitely than they did with Hirohito. Significantly, in the present post-war years of Cold War, 
when the Anglo-American imperialists are trying desperately to organize an all-out capitalist war against the USSR, they are complaining that the biggest mistake they ever made was to yield to the mass pressure and to smash the Hitler regime so completely in World War II. The only way that the war could have the degree of anti-fascist content that it did attain and the unconditional surrender slogan be carried through was by the predominant democratic influence of the Soviet Union. In this respect, the Soviets were in harmony with the democratic masses everywhere, including those of the United States. The political leader of World War II in the fight against Hitlerism was the USSR, and it could not have been otherwise. The truth about the atomic bombs, the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. On August 6th and 9th, the US dropped nuclear bombs on the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. An estimated 129,000 to 226,000 civilians died as a result. On August 15th, Japan declared an unconditional surrender. The most common narrative in the US justifies the bombings by claiming that this was the only way to end World War II without an invasion, which would have cost thousands of American and Japanese lives. However, historical evidence from American and Japanese archives shows that Japan would have surrendered in August regardless if nuclear bombs were used. President Truman and his closest advisors were well aware of this. Allied intelligence reported that Soviet entry into the war would force the Japanese to surrender, stating, if at any time the USSR should enter the war, all Japanese will realize that absolute defeat is inevitable. On August 8th, the USSR invaded Japanese-occupied Manchuria and ousted the Kwantung army, realizing they could not fight a war on two fronts, especially with the threat of Soviet takeover, Japan surrendered. Admiral William Leahy, Truman's chief of staff, even wrote in his memoir, the use of this barbarous weapon at Hiroshima and Nagasaki was of no material assistance in our war against Japan. The Japanese were already defeated and ready to surrender. And being the first to use it, we had adopted an ethical standard common to the barbarians of the Dark Ages. All right, and with that, we'll be stopping for our second round of questions and comments. Really quickly, I wanted to add an additional fact about the atomic bombing of Nagasaki, which I think is quite ironic. The atomic bomb at Nagasaki actually exploded over the largest Catholic cathedral outside of Europe, the largest Catholic cathedral in Asia. So just ironic, considering that it was uh, these Western forces that did it. And I want to just say for the comments section, let's try to limit how much we get into the discussion about the atomic bombs, because we are going to be having a class on Hiroshima and Nagasaki this August. So yeah, I'll go ahead and take the hands that we have up. Uh, first, Comrade General Secretary Angelo, you have the floor. Just want to mention a book that came out in the um, in the 80s by historian Gar Aparowitz. I believe it was called Why They Dropped the Bomb. And that's the most updated information from the archives of why the bomb was dropped. Thank you. Thank you, Comrade. And I'll add as well that that Untold History of the United States series that we watch from Oliver Stone also has the correct timeline about the atomic bomb and the truth of the atomic bomb. And he actually got a lot of shit for it when he did the series and released the book and had a whole bunch of bourgeois scholars coming out trying to defend the Truman narrative. 
And really, anytime they were, you know, push came to shove, they couldn't prove their narrative about it. It just kept coming out that you know, there are tons of reasons why that was not the truth. And also the Soviets were, I believe, invading the islands north of Japan and would have invaded the island of Hokkaido, which to the Japanese was like the basis for their empire. So that's one of the big reasons, one of the main reasons why the Japanese surrendered. I wish to know what it was called because I came across this documentary the other day. It was like a little snippet of it. It was comparing Western and uh, Soviet narratives. It was it was clearly biased, but it was it showed a lot of things. One of the reasons for being, I mean, they're already hardline, but they were hoping that since the Soviets hadn't gotten involved, that they could have been sort of uh, negotiators for them. And the last time one of them went to go see, or I'm not sure if Molotov went to go see them or vice versa. But they were asking for a favor along the lines of, can you help us um, negotiate? And Molotov handed him a declaration of war. And pretty much after that point, they knew. Because like, they tried to, the, originally, I was at the pot stand. They were supposed to all attack on the 15th of August. But the U.S. jumped the gun and all those things on top of it. And, yeah. Thank you, comrade. And it always confused me as well. This country that was able to do countless interventions after World War II and and uh, risk the lives of countless American servicemen in Korea and Vietnam and Iraq and Afghanistan was so afraid that more American lives would be lost in Operation Downfall. That's what they signed up for. That's what troops are for is to do these military you know, invasions and interventions. And I really don't think that if you know the United States and the uh, USSR both invaded Japan, that Japan would have procrastinated a, a surrender very long. I'm pretty sure that they would have surrendered at the start of that invasion. So it just makes the narrative fall through even more. Yes, comrade. So I want to go back a little bit to the beginning of uh, Nazism, you know, 1933. So here we got um, the USSR uh, trying to, Stalin that is, you know, trying to make an alliance between the USSR, France and England. Okay, because he knows that there are contradictions uh, between France and England and, uh, and Germany. The France and England want to keep their empire intact or increase it. Uh, they're scared of Germany becoming a superpower. So there's contradictions. Stalin knows that. So he used one against the other. And of course, France and uh, UK being a bourgeois liberal, it's a better deal than fascism. So it's obvious. Okay, until... 39 he tries until August 39. That didn't work. They rejected it because they wanted to push Hitler the way he was falling to the east to use him against the USSR, the main enemy. Okay. So then Stalin being smart, switch around and make a non-aggression with Nazi Germany. And he turns Hitler back to the center. Smart move, right? Dialectics. Okay. So later on, uh, when um, Hitler uh, actually declares war on the USSR, then automatically UK and France, or rather the United States, found themselves as allied with the USSR, which is good for Stalin. So he got what he wanted to begin with. Yeah, okay. So he, he was a master dialectician. Now this, this is relevant to what's happening today in a sense that you have to use contradictions to your benefit in order to win, the key word to win. And that's what communists in Russia are doing. 
they're using the contradiction between Putin and the West to their benefit, uh, because Putin is fighting the West, okay? So that gives you an idea of uh, how we're supposed to do. Same thing here in America, by the way, comrades. All right, thank you for that, comrade. Yeah, you know, I often find myself reminding my liberal friends who like praise the U.S. for fighting Nazi Germany that like, you know, they didn't do it for ideological reasons. They didn't do it because they had a problem with white supremacy. They were pretty much white supremacists in many ways themselves. Um, so the U.S. involvement was really had material reasons more than like ideological ones. And I just want to remind everyone, I'm sure we all always hear that trope that, you know, Nazis were socialists, that uh, fascism is a form of socialism. All you have to do to disprove that is just look at how the U.S. and capitalism treated Nazi Germany. And they didn't like instantly invade and try to overthrow them like they did with every other socialist country. They, the media was pretty friendly towards them initially. So just something to remember. Thank you for that, comrade. Brief as I can. Initially, which we'll, we could expand more on it, but I want to just, for those who don't already know, the real reason, and that's what's been stated by other comrades here about how Japan already was defeated they were ready to surrender well the fact that the real reason for the atomic bombs was not for for japan it was the atomic bombs were meant to be dropped to scare the soviet union from going then or in the future about doing anything to stand against western imperialism after the war after nazi germany was defeated in fact just right after the atomic bombs were dropped Truman at a meeting in person with Stalin turns to him and he says, hey, by the way, we just dropped two atomic bombs. So if you think about on Japan, close to where your force are, so if you think about doing anything in the future, don't even think about it. And then Stalin to the effect says, really? <laughs> and then years later, rather than it scaring Stalin and the Soviet Russians to death, they just said, okay, well, you made a hammer. Now we're going to make an even bigger hammer and more hammers in that sense. So anyway, the atomic bombs were not meant for Japan. They were meant for the Soviet Union to scare them. Thank you, comrade. And I just want to add real quick that another thing about the atomic bombs is I've heard some ultra leftists start to get on this trope of saying that the Manhattan Project and people like Robert Oppenheimer and some of the other communists involved with the project were just indefensible because they helped to create nuclear bombs. Just forgetting the fact that people like Albert Einstein and other scientists came over from Nazi Germany before the war even started and said, hey, the Nazis are developing the, these kind of weaponry. And we all know what they're going to do if they have it. They're Nazis. They're not going to have any qualms about using it on London, Paris, New York, wherever. And they wanted to make sure that they got ahead of that. And they did. Um, and that was a progressive thing to make sure that uh, Nazi Germany didn't have that weaponry. And yes, they stopped production of nuclear weapons in 1942, but the United States didn't know that. And ultimately, it was progressive to make sure that they did that. And the Soviet Union was still able to make their own nuclear weaponry after the war. So the communist involvement in the Manhattan Project was not wrong. And yeah, I just wanted to add that because, you know, especially as you know, there's the big movie that's out right now is Oppenheimer, and I, I not watched it, so I don't know what it gets wrong in the movie. But there were communists involved with that, and it was good that they were because, you know, at that point in time, that's what they were faced with. I'm not sure where I heard this, but I've heard that um, that some of the people involved, the scientists involved in the Manhattan Project only did so because, as you said, they thought that Nazi Germany was working on them. I've heard that 
the US government found out that the Nazis gave up on the making the nuclear bombs and they just didn't reveal it to any of the scientists. And one of the scientists who was working on it found out and immediately dropped out of the project as soon as he realized, but that some of them had their, their qualms about how, how destructive of a weapon it would be like if they were successful in making it. Yeah, I can answer that by saying I've not heard about the United States knowing about the Nazis stopping their production of atomic weaponry. But I do know that many of the people did later regret working on the atom bombs. You know, at the time, it was good because they were trying to get ahead of Germany. But then when they learned just what the U.S. imperialists were intending to do with them, uh, they regretted it. Uh, Not only Oppenheimer, but I believe that Albert Einstein himself said that his biggest regret in life was signing the letter to Roosevelt recommending that the atom bombs be produced. So, you know, dialectically, we can see how at the time was a progressive thing to make sure that fascists didn't be the first to have atomic monopoly. But later on, they recognized how it gave the imperialists the atomic bomb at the start. And for a couple of years before the USSR tested their first atomic bomb, it was kind of thought that the U.S. had an atomic monopoly and they used that as a wild card to hold over the Soviets of We'll drop it on you. I believe that's an actual quote from Truman at a conference is, we'll drop it on you. Yeah, I wanted to touch on something um, that was kind of touched on briefly, but expand upon it. So the first thing is, you know, post-war United States is often viewed as like the golden era of economic development. But we have to look at this objectively and say, there's a particular reason for this. Germany was the industrial powerhouse of Europe and it still is today. And after 1945, we know how Germany was. All industrial manufacturing was literally destroyed. All railroads were destroyed, everything like this. And the same thing with Japan. The United States was only able to elevate to such a position because it had literally taken out all competitors by use of force. You know, we contrast this with the Soviet Union economic development at around that same time. They didn't have the Great Depression, but yet they were able to be on par with the United States at around the time of 1939 in terms of economic development. The second thing I want to touch on is um, in regards to the contrast of ideas in terms of the use of nuclear energy. The Soviets created the first peaceful atom, the first nuclear power plant in 1950, I want to say seven or eight, something like this, maybe even later than that, I'm not sure. But they created the first nuclear power plant. And this is in stark contrast. Obviously, they created nuclear weapons before this. But this is in stark contrast to the United States policy of let's build up a stockpile of these weapons. Let's get American citizens to go hunting for uranium literally by themselves. You know, and then the Soviets had the idea of we've nationalized all atomic energy. We've nationalized all mining of atomic minerals and things like this. So it's a very stark contrast. That's all. All right. Thank you, comrade. We also do have new members introductions. So let me go ahead and see if we have anybody new for that. Um, So there's one name uh, that I don't recognize. I'll go ahead and ask you to unmute. We just do this to see where people come from, if they appreciate uh, what they're learning at the school, and just to see how people find us. Um, I am a union electrician. I found about the people's school through word of mouth, and I've enjoyed every bit about it. Um, I like uh, I like this time of history specifically. All right, thank you, comrade. We're glad that you were able to find us. 
And we hope that you're able to attend uh, more classes into the future. But of course, if you are new and we didn't get to you in this section, just make sure to throw your hand up or let one of our co-hosts know and we can get this back up on the screen for you. Uh, yeah. Now, when it came to the Manchuria section, I was kind of interested as to why uh, you used uh, the Gormandan. Uh, 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 because I know there was a split in the Gormandan. There, there, there was a reactionary Gormandan that, that worked as a puppet of the Japanese Imperial Army. Uh, but I don't know why not just call it the Japanese Army. All right. So was your question basically... Um... How was the Kuomintang at the time fighting the Japanese army? The question was, how was the Soviets fighting the Kuomintang? Uh, okay. Because uh, I know that there was, uh, towards the beginning of uh, Japan's operation in, in China, that Jing Jingwei made a deal with the Japanese to work as the public government. And they did, and, and, th and they were the reactionary government. But I was I was kind of curious uh, as to why the Guomindang were listed as like being ousted from Nigeria by the Soviet actions. All right, I don't I don't know so much about the Guomindang and their relations with the Soviets and Japan at the end of the war. Might have said the Kwantung Army, which I know is what they first launched into Manchuria. But if anybody has a better response on that. You can go ahead and raise your hand. I'm sorry I wasn't able to give you a better um, answer to that question. Okay. Yeah, I don't I don't have a direct response to that, but um I wanted to give a little bit of uh, you know, this class has been on American imperialist imperialism in World War II. I did want to give some credit to American leadership also. Um okay, so in 1943. The big three, uh, Churchill, Stalin, and uh, Roosevelt, they met in Tehran, that's the capital of Iran, to discuss opening the second front in Europe. And uh, the British, Churchill, he had in mind a different strategy. He wanted to open up a new front in the Balkans. His goal was looking towards after the war to preserve the British Empire by maintaining access to uh, the Suez Canal in Gibraltar. But um, Roosevelt actually stated, I don't care about British imperial interests. I care about defeating fascism. I'm paraphrasing, of course. Uh, you know, I don't know the exact quote, but uh, I just wanted to give a little bit of credit where credit is due. Definitely. Thank you for that, comrade. Yeah, I read Quan Quantung Army. Yeah, so that was a, a part of the Japanese army. I just wanted to clear that up because I think I might have said Kuomintang. <laughs> Thank you, comrade. Yeah, I thought it I thought it might have been the Quantung Army because that was the military force that they first launched into China in uh, the 1930s into the Manchuria area. So thank you. Uh, you you mentioned like uh, Switzerland and uh, the LSS in Switzerland. Wasn't there some controversy over like Alan Dulles? He was the chief of the state in Switzerland of negotiating with the Nazis and the Soviets thought he might be trying to make a separate peace with uh, some German forces during the war. I don't know about the ins and outs of that, but I do know that uh, the Dulles brothers through that Sullivan and Cromwell 
Uh, we're basically representing the people in the International Bank of Settlements that were still doing business with the Nazis. Uh, the International Bank of Settlements was where a lot of the gold and jewelry and, and belongings of, of the people across Europe that were looted by the Nazis at the beginning of the war were kept. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why now it's often the butt of a joke, Switzerland is of being neutral when in reality they were working um, with both sides, the Nazis and the U.S. imperialists, not with the Soviet Union, though. Um, but I don't know about John Foster Dulles and Alan Dulles working to make peace with the Nazis. I would not be surprised given the history you know, of those two individuals. Yeah, they, like he tried to negotiate with some German general about localized surrender and or something, and there was uh, controversy about that. All right. Well, if anybody has a response to that. Yeah, I think um, what we could do is we can have the People's School social media share a movie from 1949, actually it's called The Fall of Berlin. And while the movie itself is sort of a semi-fiction, you know, historical account, it has a lot of true things in it. And one of the things that that movie in particular goes into is how, number one, the Americans, us, we were, to some extent, we were working with the Soviet Union. At least some Americans were. And then at the same time, the British were working with the Nazis. And they were working with the Nazis. We mentioned this at one of the other classes that the German intelligence services called the Abwehr were working with Britain for a number of reasons. The first reason was they knew they were going to lose the war as soon as they crossed the border with the Soviet Union. Even before that, because we mentioned this, the German officers and the Soviet officers actually both trained together at schools in the Soviet Union that were set up secretly in the 20s and 30s, where the Soviet Union got German technology and tactics, and the Germans were rearmed by the Soviet Union. This is all done in secret. At the time, the military was called the Reichswehr. The Soviet Union got burned on that one, just like the Soviet Union got burned by the Kuomintang, who actually killed all the communists. But back to the, the question itself, can you just repeat it real quick? Because I actually have the answer in one sentence. Uh, there was, uh, like, Alan Dulles, like, uh, ne was negotiating with German general in Italy, and oh, they were, the, yes, like, trying yes. to make it separate. Uh -huh. Yeah, so the um, collaboration between Britain and Nazi Germany was so great that Hitler, he thought Britain, being Anglo-Saxons, were Germanic people. And that's why at Dunkirk, they even, they made some movie about it recently, Dunkirk, but what they failed to mention is Hitler could have crushed all the British armies. This is the British armies who retreated to Britain. Britain could have opened a second front at the start of the conflict, but they just all went back to Britain and sat and watched because Hitler paused all his armies. He had them stop because he didn't want to kill fellow German people. And one of the leading Nazis, like the number three Nazi, it'd be like the number three person in our party. I think his name was um, not Rudolf Hess, but they flew one of the, like the number three Nazi flew into Britain and they dropped him by parachute and he was supposed to meet with them. And maybe he did, but clearly Britain saw which way the war was going to go. And they're like, you know what? We better not do this. And so they just arrested the guy. I think his name was Rudolf Hess. He's like the number three Nazi. They, they dropped him in by parachute and he went there to meet with the British on the British island. All right. Thank you for that, comrade. And I hope that answered your question, uh, comrade. Yes, thanks. Yeah, um, about the Tehran conference, actually. So Iran was technically neutral in World War II. In a war against fascism, the country was neutral because the monarchy was kind of trying to play both sides of the war. It was run by a guy named Reza Khan. 
as the leading monarch, who was the father of Mohammed Reza Pahlavi, who would later be overthrown in the revolution. And the allied powers actually invaded Iran to overthrow him because of that, because he was like kind of playing around with Nazi Germany and all that stuff. So I just wanted to also add that too. It's like they, the Tehran conference was important in World War II, but then in the end, the allies also invaded Iran and overthrew the monarch for basically trying to flirt with the Nazis. Yeah, and I want to add as well that I think that's where the Lend-Lease equipment was sent to the USSR from, was through Iran, because it went from the Gulf of Persia up to Azerbaijan uh, through that corridor. And thank you for adding that, comrade. Um, if you have some time later, uh, look up a David Rovex song called uh, Henry Ford Was a Fascist. It's basically he wrote it because the um, Ford Motor Company was um, supplying the Germans and even their factories within Germany with uh, heavy machinery and tanks. And of course, they got bombed in the war and uh, Ford Motor Company actually sued the U.S. government for damages and they actually won in the 50s. <laughs> Thank you for that, comrade. And that reminds me to bring up uh, something that I thought I put in the presentation, uh, but I guess I must have accidentally deleted or something. It was a slide that talked about General Motors and Ford both setting up factories in Nazi Germany through their subsidiaries. For Ford, it was Ford Werk or Ford Germany. And I forget what it was for General Motors, but it was through Alfred Sloan, who was a subsidiary of the General Motors company who basically said that his company was too big to be affected by a petty international squabble. And he said that only right after the invasion of Poland happened. He, he regarded the, the war itself a petty international squabble. And his company was too big to be affected by it. One of the grossest facts about American businesses in World War II was that the factories that they set up over there were bombed by the Allies during the bombings, during the unconditional surrender period and the bombings of Dresden and all these factories and stuff. And these companies sued Ford and General Motors, sued for damages and for reparations for their factories that were destroyed in Nazi Germany. And they won. And they were paid for damages by the United States and Britain for the, their factories that were destroyed. And so it just goes to show how disgusting uh, these monopoly capitalists can be, but just also how much power they have that they can look at our military and go, hey, you costed us profits. You need to cough that up. And also a lot of the corporations that had their ties basically cut for a short period under the Trading with the Enemies Act were able to resequester their funds and all of their holdings after World War II. And just another point real quick on Henry Ford is that Henry Ford wrote in the Dearborn Independent, which was a publication in Dearborn, Michigan, where his main plants were, a series of articles and later a book entitled The International Jew, The World's Foremost Problem. And so he was a rabid anti-Semite and basically had a lot of the same theories as the Nazis at the time. And... I believe that Hitler referenced him in Mein Kampf and then later hung a picture of Ford in his Munich office and said, I regard Heinrich Ford as my inspiration. Um, so it just goes to show once again just how in with the fascists they were at this time. It wasn't even just that they supported Nazi Germany. To an extent, Nazi Germany supported these fascistic American imperialists. Um, so I just wanted to add that. 
So now our last section for tonight is the post-war imperialist activity. Greece, launching pad of Cold War. In October 1944, after the Axis were defeated in Greece by the Greek Communist Party of the National Liberation Front, EAM, the British intervened on the side of King George II and the fascist paramilitary groups such as Organization X. From December of that year to February 1945, the mass killing of National Liberation Front members and communists called the Dikem Rihanna took place. The conflict, though, ended in 1945 started back up as a full-scale civil war from 1946 to 49 with the British under Churchill and Americans under Truman supporting the side of reaction both financially and militarily. In March 12, 1947, the Truman Doctrine was announced to Congress. The Truman Doctrine was adopted at the Cold War policy of containment of the Soviet Union. Well, with the Marshall Plan, formerly called the European Recovery Act of 1948, the Marshall Plan was programmed to contain the Soviet Union by providing 13 billion, 138 billion today for to reconstruct the war ravaged Europe. The Marshall Plan was an extension of the Truman Doctrine. The plan was stated to rebuild post-war Europe, but in practice it gave grants and loans to Europe to buy U.S. goods. It was signed into law on April 3, 1948, by Harry Truman after being passed by the 80th Congress of the United States. The Soviets rejected the plan. Molotov walked out of the Paris talks and Eastern European states were advised to, to and did reject the plan as well. The, um, the Marshall Plan. Everybody is familiar with the dirt race in Europe over the Marshall Plan. This plan is advertised as a factor of salvation for the post-war recovery of Europe's economy. To listen to foreign British or French statesmen without American credits under the Marshall Plan, economic recovery in the European countries is impossible. However, the American dollars, which found this year into the pockets of the European capitalists under the United States credit plan, did not produce any real revival of industry in the countries of capitalist Europe. And they cannot produce that revival since the American credits are not being given in order to restore and expand the industries of the European countries, which compete with the United States, but in order to provide a broader market for American goods in Europe and to place these countries in economic and political dependence on the capitalist monopolies, which dominate the United States and on their aggressive plans in disregard of the interests of the European people themselves. In contradiction to this, the post-war recovery and expansion of industry in the USSR are not dependent upon any capitalist country and entirely serves to satisfy the needs of its own people. The Molotov in 31st anniversary of the Great October Socialist Revolution. From July 1st to July 22nd, 1944, the United States Monetary Financial Conference met in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire. The conference was attended by 44 nations to discuss the post-war economic order. The main results of the conference were the creation of the organization's International Monetary Fund created by Special Assistant to U.S. Secretary of Treasury Harry Drexel White and the economist John Maynard Keynes for National Bank of Reconstruction and Development later changed to the World Bank. The goal was to create a gold-backed currency and exchange rate. Since the U.S. dollar was the strongest of the participant nations, the U.S. dollar would become fixed to the price of gold and all other currencies would exchange via the U.S. dollar. Effectively, this created an international trade system dominated by the United States. The Central Intelligence Agency, which succeeded the Office of Strategic Services, was recreated with the passage of the National Security Act of 1947. 
the CIA was created with the aims of centralizing intelligence in order to gain information on foreign militaries, to sabotage enemy military infrastructure, and to bring political change that would that favored U.S. foreign policy. The U.S. was given additional permits to use any action necessary to carry out its objectives. This even caused Truman himself to rebuke the operational role of the CIA in an op-ed for the Washington Post in December 1963, writing, I never had any thought that when I accepted the CIA that it would be injected into peacetime cloak and dagger operations. The creation of NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, was a collective military agreement that formed in 1949 as a generalization of the Treaty of Dunkirk and the Treaty of Brussels. NATO became a military alliance between Western Europe, U.S., and Canada, continued the Truman Doctrine of Containment of the USSR. Founding members included Belgium, Canada, Denmark, France, Iceland, Italy, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Norway, Portugal, the United Kingdom, and the United States. NATO brought into leadership former Nazi military leaders such as General Adolf Husinger, General Wolfgang Altenberg, General Johannes Steinhoff, as well as others. NATO claimed to be a security pact to protect against attack by the Soviet Union, but has not been dissolved to this day, 32 years after the counter-revolution of 1941 that systematically dismantled the USSR. Resuscitating fascism. Today, behind operations were plans coordinated between NATO, CIA, and secret intelligence services. These operations coordinate fascist networks in order to cause disorder and destroy socialism in Eastern Europe. A couple of notable state behind operations includes were Operation Gladio and Operation Aerodynamic. Operation Gladio, with the name of all operations in Italy that conducted false flag operations to delegitimize communist organizations, so as well as to arm, fund, and provide intelligence to neo-Nazi and neo-fascist groups such as the New Order, National Vanguard, and others who committed terrorist attacks on communists throughout the 1960s and 1980s, aiding Ukrainian fascists early on. A declassified U.S. CIA document from July 13, 1953 stated, the purpose of Project Aerodynamic is to provide for the exploitation and expansion of the anti-Soviet Ukrainian resistance for Cold War and hot war purposes. Such groups as the Ukrainian Supreme Council of Liberation and the Ukrainian Sturgeon Army, the foreign representative of the Ukrainian Supreme Council of Liberation in Western Europe and the United States, and other organizations such as the OUN, Slash B will be utilized. This series will be continued with history of the U.S. imperialism, dawn of the Cold War in August. All right. And with that, we'll go ahead and do our last round of questions and comments, and then we'll wrap up for tonight. Yes. Uh, but just before you brought this new section, the on the last section, uh, people mentioned Oppenheimer. And it's funny that uh, today's New York Times has uh, an op-ed piece by the man who wrote the uh, biography of Oppenheimer. And uh, even though he was maybe the father, you could say, of the atomic bomb some, in some ways, uh, he had his security clearance uh, taken away from him because uh, he was uh, publicly uh, railing against a nuclear, having a nuclear arms race. And he is actually quoted as saying, that the Hiroshima bomb was used against an essentially defeated enemy. And he said, the bomb is a weapon for aggressors and the elements of surprise and terror are as intrinsic to it are a deficientable nuclei. So uh, basically it had nothing to do with the uh, military values. 
and he was uh, known uh, for continuing his opposition uh, against nuke the whole nuclear buildup. Thank you, comrade. And I also want to add that another element of the post-war imperialist activity um, that really helped to uh, support U.S. imperialism and, and just Western imperialism in general after the war was the massive domestic repression of communists in the United States uh, through McCarthyism, through the House of Un-American Activities Committee, even into the 1950s, like we uh, had in our last class uh, or last month's class on the Rosenbergs and their murder. Um, so that's another element of it, because basically with the end of World War II, the U.S. basically immediately launched the Cold War. Truthfully, it was with the end of the war with Japan, but with Greece, with Korea and with McCarthyism at home, um, the United States, you know, helped to get that set up. And another thing I wanted to add real quick is that the term Iron Curtain was not a term that was ever used or coined by the USSR. The term Iron Curtain was actually a term that was coined by, I believe, Churchill. Uh, when he came to the United States and spoke in 1946 uh, alongside Harry Truman. So I just wanted to add that in there. Yeah. Does anybody have any more specific details on who, I guess, the West picked after the defeat of Nazism? I'm pretty sure they didn't literally go, oh, we want a scientist and to make sure he's a Nazi. Is it just based on their skill and then they happen to have been a Nazi? Um, and I guess the U.S. used World War II to take charge of NATO because it obviously is a remnant of the of the Nazis and all that. So does anybody have any clarifications? Thank you. I'll go ahead and answer with is that, you know, I don't know that their prerogative right after the war was, you know, just straight up. Let's just go for Nazis. I think it was let's go for people that will be helpful in the fight against communism and the fight against the USSR. So with Nazi Germany having just been defeated, they went ahead and uh, took the people from Nazi Germany and other places as well. I believe um, I believe Italy and uh, Vichy France as well. And they gave them positions. They took scientists back to the United States like Operation Paperclip, and they put them in the uh, at the top of the operations in NATO because they were going to be uh, some of the best anti-Soviet forces at the time. And you even see that with Operation Aerodynamic with propping up the Ukrainian fascists after the war. And I just want to bring up as well, real quick, we found out, I believe in a class last year, watching the Ukraine on Fire documentary, that Stepan Bandera himself was actually like rehabilitated by uh, the CIA, I believe in, in either Germany or Austria or somewhere in, in Central Europe. And the KGB was still hunting him down and managed to get him in the late 50s. So even Stepan Bandera himself was being aided by the United States and the CIA um, because he was an anti-Soviet agent. And one other thing I wanted to hit on, it was it's kind of tied to the whole quote unquote containment for the Cold War thing. But another thing that expanded uh, the U.S. is like global scale imperialism, because before World War II, it was more of hemispherical, aside from the Philippines and a few islands in the Pacific. But it's basically getting involved in Belgium, Britain and France's colonial endeavors. It's how you end up with U.S. troops in like Congo and like that. And that's very seldomly talked about. 
Same with um, like Iran was another big example. Iran and Iraq in 53 and then the late 50s with all um, how the Shah got installed. That's all tied to British oil and all that other kind of thing. It's basically just them taking Britain and France's charge. Thank you, comrade. And I think that that goes to show how all of the different, you know, imperialist empires prior to World War II basically ended up becoming, you know, united under Western imperialism, which is just synonymous with American imperialism at that point after World War II. Um, And you're correct with, you know, when it comes to Vietnam, it was the French colonialism. When it comes to something like Iran, you know, us going against Mossadegh, you know, that was uh, British colonialism. So you're correct on that, comrade. Uh, Yeah, I didn't add it in uh, because I didn't think we'd have this much time left. But um, yeah, on top of the containment plans, um, the containment policies, I I brought this up in other classes. Um, I want people to look into Operation Dropshot and Operation Unthinkable. Uh, Operation Unthinkable was a plan uh, formulated by Winston Churchill to have a full-scale invasion of the Soviet Union. Um, But then Operation Dropshot was Eisenhower's plan to to literally nuke all the Soviet cities. It had an estimated um, that it would kill, I think, 300 million people from you know, in Eastern Europe and Russia. The whole Operation Dropshot was supposed to begin, but right before it was about to start, the Soviets dropped their first uh, nuclear weapon. So, you know, I I spoke about this in another class, but it is uh, very important stuff. Thank you, comrade. And just to visualize that, the United States has 330 million people. So that's pretty much almost all of the United States that would, in terms of the number of people uh, that would have been killed. So thank you for adding that, comrade. Hello. Uh, I was wondering, um, what was the, I guess, the main reason they gave for, I guess, uh, like anti-communism propaganda at the time? Because I guess, correct me as I, if I'm wrong, but I think the millions dead number came from the Black Book of Communism but that didn't release until like 1990s. And I think a lot of it was had to do with Khrushchev, where Khrushchev basically told a lot of lies about Stalin after he died and became the leader. But what happened? What what was the sentiment before that? I'm already that too sure about that. And correct me if I'm mistaken on anything so far. Thanks. Yeah. Well, after World War II, there was an immense worldwide respect for the Soviet Union for accomplishing what they did in defeating Nazi Germany. And that even went as far as the American people, the general American masses were proud of the Soviet Union and recognized that defeat. What they had to do following World War II was a second Red Scare, and that was McCarthyism where they basically said communists are evil, communists want to, you know, now they want to continue the war and they want to uh, invade Europe. They want to destroy all these civilized European countries. And these American communists at home are subversives that want to kill you and, and, and you know, harm American democracy and freedom. Um, and that was successful to some extent at the time. And then, yes, later on, they still had to keep inventing narratives over and over again 
for you know why we should hate communists and in the 1950s it was the domino theory if it happens in vietnam then it'll happen in laos thailand all the way until it gets to the united states when it came to you know later on after the counter revolution in the ussr they did the black book of communism and basically had this whole historical revisionism about all these victims of nazis um and even today they go ahead and they change the narrative on the formation of NATO and why that was necessary at the time and why it has always been a defensive coalition. And and so it's just a matter of creating narratives and creating scare campaigns to get the masses to uh, believe the imperialist narrative and support the imperialist against the Soviet Union. You see them doing it today uh, with the war in Ukraine and the going ahead and changing the narrative about the history of the last 10 years of the Russo-Ukrainian war. Yeah, and I think just to add on to that, it was also, if we remember the Great Depression and going into that, it was the military Keynesianism that allowed sort of the US to kind of pull itself out. And that was one of the things that they were very worried about, their increased war production. They had to keep it up for profits, and so they had to find a new and greater enemy just for their material concerns. But I was also gonna just suggest um, the book Killing Hope, um, it's a really great, it's by William Blum, it's published in 2014, but he has a pretty good anthology of almost every single like military, like covert operation that we've done, you know, in other nations and stuff. Thank you. Thank you for that, comrade. And if you can, if you can message that title to one of our co-hosts so that they can put it in the chat, that would be really good. And I just wanted to also make a comment real quick with Harry Truman coming into the presidency with uh, FDR's death. Um, it wasn't always slated to be that way. Henry Wallace, one of our fellow travelers that we know from different uh, classes before, was initially the vice president of uh, FDR and was very popular among the uh, American working masses. He was a big person behind the New Deal. He wanted to have peaceful coexistence with the Soviet Union. He was very close to a lot of the people that worked on the Manhattan Project and in the 1944 vice presidential election, because they actually used to have elections for these things, it wasn't just somebody you chose. They did this thing where Henry Wallace was running and they put Truman in last second. And basically, like literally last second, they went ahead and booted Wallace off the ticket. And there were just enough votes for Truman that Truman became the vice president of FDR. And there were a lot of people around Truman, like Jimmy Burns, and the, the military commanders like Wallace and such that basically guided Truman towards a more imperialist, hostile you know, policy following World War II. Because Roosevelt was actually intending to basically set up peaceful coexistence with the Soviet Union. And it, you know, we could go into hypotheticals about what FDR would have actually done in that case. I mean, we were still imperialists. You know, we probably would have still had some antagonism with the Soviet Union. Um, but that that maneuvering in the 1944 presidential election definitely led a lot to the kind of uh, massive campaign of, of the Cold War that we saw with Truman following World War Two. Yes, I also mentioned that I think like Joseph Goebbels used the term Iron Curtain before Churchill in the speech. I did yeah. not know that. Thank you, comrade. Yeah, this is a great class, and I wanted to um, kind of respond to, I believe it was, question. They definitely chose a lot of these people because they were Nazis, as Nazis were ideologically opposed to the Soviet Union. That's the difference. 
if they would have just put some civil servant who did his, you know, service and from 1933 to 45 and not necessarily a member of the Nazi party, it wouldn't have had the same outcome. And I want to reference people to a documentary series called Gladiators of World War II. The starting episode is about the Waffen SS. And it's quite interesting because they interview former SS soldiers from all throughout Europe. They have people from Belgium. They have people from Norway. They have people from these. All of these people gave that same reason. The Germ we weren't necessarily wanting to be Germany, but we had an obligation to physically fight against the communist. And Germany was the only country that was offering that. Tens of thousands of people from all throughout Europe, different parts of Europe as well. Spain alone sent tens of thousands of volunteers that fought and died on the Eastern Front against Judeo-Bolters. You know, anti-communism is a hell of a drug, and a lot of people are on it. Thank you, comrade. Yeah, I could be wrong, but I came across a source um, historically that said that, you, that you know, at the time, to expand on that, there were even, like, Americans that were fighting and dying on the Eastern Front wearing the Waffen-SS and Wehrmacht uniforms even and on a different note about how truman got in at the last second you want to talk about something that to me it just sounds like that might as well be like because whatever maneuvering was going on that was dirty maneuvering that if you want to say what there was no claim ever prior about a stolen election and a rigged election turns out that with truman in that case from what you just described that really was a truly stolen election the way that they got him in at the last minute the way that the strings that they would have to uphold, like what happened with Trump, how they were complaining for Trump that that was stolen. Well, no, it wasn't. That one wasn't. But what happened with, you said his name was Wallace and the stuff that went in and that, that one was stolen. It's very dirty and it's often with brute force and threat of violence to make sure Truman got in. Thank you, comrade. And I think that one of the things that we can kind of relate it to as well in recent years is the Democratic primary elections in 2016 and 2020, and how basically the imperialists came in during the elections and made Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden the nominees instead of somebody like Bernie Sanders, who was no Henry Wallace, but for our time is one of the closer people to a, a character like that. Yeah, we, we spoke about um, anti-communist propaganda, Joseph Goebbels, and uh, uh, we, we didn't really talk about him uh, in this. I know uh, briefly mentioned the name William Randolph Hearst. You know, so William Randolph Hearst was, a, you know, a huge um, media owner, and uh, he basically took what Goebbels uh, from, uh, from Nazi Germany, what he would say, and put it all over the air to spread around in the U.S. A couple of the big things he spread was uh, um, Cadden Massacre in uh, Poland, which was basically the Nazis killing a bunch of Polish soldiers, burying them in a mass grave, and then trying to blame it on the Soviet Union. Then uh, he also spread the lie that Goebbels came up with, the um, Holodomor. So if you hear people bringing up Holodomor or Captain Massacre, that comes straight from Joseph Goebbels. So just wanted to bring that up as well. 96. All right. Thank you, comrade. And I also wanted to briefly mention it was brought up that there were Americans on the front fighting with Nazis. 
that was something that happened a lot because the biggest group of immigrants in America is German Americans, even more than Anglo Americans. And a lot of German Americans were very cultural. When the war happened, they went back to Germany because the fatherland was calling. Um, there's even a scene, if you've ever watched the documentary series Band of Brothers, it's in one of the first episodes where one of the American troops is going past a bunch of captured Nazis. And, you know, it, he's making fun of one of them and goes, oh, where are you from? You know, and he laughs. And as he's walking away, the Nazi goes, Eugene, Oregon, because he was one of the people that lived in the United States and was German and went back and fought for Nazi Germany um, once that ended. But we should also remember that there were plenty of Americans that were of that heritage or other, you know, European immigrant heritages that went and fought in the Spanish Civil War prior to World War II and then went and fought in the actual Second World War itself, like Robert G. Thompson, who was a black Oregonian communist in the CPUSA that fought in the Spanish Civil War, then went and fought in the Pacific and was a complete hero in battle and then came home. And what was what happened? He was jailed during McCarthyism. Um, so I, I wanted to bring that up. And real quick, we'll go ahead and take the hand by comrade, and then we'll wrap up for tonight. Uh, very quickly, I uh, want to correct people uh, on an assumption regarding uh, Wallace and Truman. Although the effect on international operations that the United States had and uh, how it changed the entire world with the United States and Soviet Union and, and the right-wing anti-communism that uh, Truman and all his staff all followed. However, the reason Truman was put in as uh, his running mate uh, and they dumped Wallace had nothing to do with, uh, in, with the war or Soviet Union or international operations. It was the Southern Democrats, and now we call them red states, but uh, the entire South was 100% Democrat, and they were racist, uh, basically uh, uh, anti-Black to the core, and they threatened to withhold their support for Roosevelt in 1944, unless they dumped Wallace, because Wallace was a super uh, integrationist, and he would have used the power of the presidency uh, if he ever got into office uh, and, and, and destroying segregation across the United States. And they knew that. And that's why they forced Roosevelt's hand. And unfortunately, like I said, he was a real... 90 seconds. Himself, he was still a you know, regular traditional politician. And he didn't want to take a chance. So he, he dumped uh, Wallace and took Truman. But that but the had nothing to do with international relations or, or the Soviet Union. It was strictly uh, on the issue of segregation and integration. Thank you, comrade. And it just goes to show that Democrats can be just as reactionary as Republicans sometimes, sometimes even more. All right. Thank you, comrades, for all your comments tonight. I think it was a really good class. I wish that we had more people on, but that's all right. Uh, I think that we you know, covered a lot tonight. And I'm glad that we were able to have this class, especially because this point in you know, the history of U.S. imperialism is really a turning point. We go from being a big power um, after World War One, you know, getting into the international stage and, you know, quote, winning that war and setting up the reparation system and all that League of Nations um, to being one of the world's like sole superpowers after World War Two. And that leads to the Cold War, um, which we'll be getting to next month with history of U.S. imperialism, dawn of the Cold War. And I think we'll have three parts on that on the Cold War because it 
lasted basically 50 years. But thank you, comrades. We'll go ahead and do our wrap up now. And then New Outlook Publishers. Thank you. Please visit our partner publishing house, New Outlook Publishers. Uh, the website is newoutlookpublishers.store. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at New Outlook Pubs. Uh, our latest release uh, was Anarchism and Socialism by uh, Joseph Stalin. And there's a couple of works relevant to this class. Early in the class, there was a section from Traders of American History, and that could be found in Selected Works of the Moscow Trial. Uh, it could be found on newoutlookpublishers.store. And of course, the two works from Georgia Dimitrov, uh, The United Front, The Struggle Against Fascism and War, and The Fascist Offensive and the Tasks of the Communist International. So once again, the website is newoutlookpublishers.store. Thank you. All right. Thank you, comrade. And of course, our legal drive. So for the comrades that are new, last year, almost a year ago at this point, it'll be a year next month, we were attacked and sabotaged by ultra-left wreckers that tried to seal the PSMLS and destroy the PCUSA. Um, they've made that their goal, destroying the PCUSA. I think it's pretty pathetic if you ask me, but um, they failed and they will be held accountable. And there are still things they took from us that we've not got back, like videos, imagery, audio, etc. That is why we still need donations to the legal drive. Um, so if you can give anything to that, whether it's um, a couple of dollars, you know, one, two, three, four, five dollars, anything that you can give, or if you can give a little more, anything will help us out with that. Uh, to donate, go to partyofcommunistusa.net slash donations. Check the box that says PSMLS legal funds and try to donate on Tuesday or Thursday so it's easier for us to sort through. That money will go to the legal fund and anything helps. Uh, it has still been an ongoing process um, and we still need anything that we can get for that. And one of the things that helps us out is the amount of people that show support for the school. So if you enjoy this school, if you like the classes, like you, a lot of people said that they really enjoyed the class tonight, if you want us to be able to continue to bring you classes like this and you wanna see these people be held accountable for what they did to us, uh, please donate uh, if you can. We will appreciate it very much. Um, and before we go ahead and play our last song for tonight, Comrade General Secretary, is there anything you'd like to say? Uh, no, thank you very much. It was a very good class. Thank you.